the first round are the representatives, the United States representative candidates, and then the House District representatives, District 32. Um, after we finish this panel, we'll take a brief break and then call up our panel of candidates for the Clatsop County Commissioner position. We'd appreciate it if the uh, panel members would identify themselves at the beginning of each statement in order to identify you because uh, KMUN, who is taping this uh, event, um, you know, when they do so, they won't be able, the listeners won't be able to uh, know who's speaking without someone identifying who they are. The uh, broadcast, uh, rebroadcast will be April 15th at 7 p.m. with KMUN. Each candidate will have up to two minutes to introduce themselves and speak to the reasons why they're in front of you running for public office. As we proceed into the questions, uh, one minute to answer questions. I know that's tough. Our timekeeper, who is sitting in, in front of us, will let you know when there are 30 seconds left by raising a yellow card. And when time is over, a red card. And you'll see me start to edge over towards you, um, if, you if you run over. So, um, Depending upon time limits, we may or may not have time for closing statements. So, our audience members uh, may ask questions by writing them on cards, which will be collected by AEUW members. Please raise your hand if you have a question, and given our time constraints, probably a good idea to write them uh, as soon as possible. All right, um, why don't we begin? And instead of me going through the introductions, I'm just going to have the candidates introduce themselves. Um, and first, the current uh, mayor of Astoria, I stand corrected, speaking on behalf of Suzanne Bonamici. Thank you, Arlene. Okay. It's a real honor for me to speak on behalf of Suzanne Bonamici, and she's very sorry that she couldn't be here this evening. This is her statement. Please accept my regrets for not being with you in person today, and thank you for allowing my friend Astoria Mayor Arlene Lemire to be here and speak on my behalf. I would also like to thank the American Association of University Women and the Daily Astorian for hosting this meeting today to bring together candidates from around the area. I applaud your efforts to help community members make informed decisions when their ballots arrive. It has been a tremendous honor to represent the people of Northwest Oregon in Congress over the last six years. I've taken the responsibility very seriously and worked the past year things done. Things in Congress have become more challenging, to say the least. And as a country, we are facing a growing number of critical issues for Congress to address. I'm running because I am up to the task and because I want to continue to create a better future for Northwest Oregonians. Too many Oregon families are still struggling to get ahead. They're counting on their elected leaders to create opportunities for good jobs, affordable childcare, and health insurance that covers them when they're sick. I'm running because I want to continue my efforts to make sure that all students have access to a quality public education while feeling safe and being safe from the threat of gun violence. 
And because our planet and future generations are counting on us to address climate change now. Public education has always been a driving force in my public service. I worked my way through community college, college, and law school with a manageable amount of debt, which I know is no longer possible for too many families. My education created many opportunities for me, and I want today's students to have the same opportunities to succeed. My youngest my youngest child was born the year Measure 5 passed, and I've seen firsthand the effects of cuts to school funding. When my two children entered school in the Beaverton School District, I became very involved as a volunteer. That advocacy ultimately led me to run for the state legislature and then Congress. Okay. Uh, let me just read her very last part then. <laughs> Uh, it has been an honor to serve you in Congress for the last six years, and despite the challenges, I hope to return to D.C. and keep working hard for my constituents. Thank you. All right. You are up, sir. Um, from the... Uh I think I think that should be on. Yep. And, up, up. and your name? Hello, my name is Ricky Barajas. I'm running for Oregon First Congressional District. My my platform pretty much is investing in people. I believe if we invest in people in our communities and our and surrounded by education and healthcare, we can achieve things together. Throughout the last six years and eight years, we've seen inequalities, we've seen people struggle, we've seen, we've seen healthcare costs rise, homeless, a lot of the, we can go over the issues over and over, but I think now is the time to elect new change, new leadership to Congress. We need change and we need it now. Throughout the night, we're gonna hear from all these candidates on the stage talk about what they wanna achieve. What I wanna achieve going into Congress is change in the first year. Anyone can promise things, and I won't make promises I can't keep, but I want to work hard for Oregonians every single day, and I want to come back to you and say, hey, we together, we achieved this. My political experience is basically zero to none. This is my first candidacy for office. It is hard to run for office. It's nerve-wracking, but I'm willing to take the challenge on. I'm wanting to take the criticism from the other side, and I want to be your champion every single day. I've only been here in Portland and Oregon for a year, but what I've seen from Oregonians is resilience, and I want to be part of that every single day. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone. I just want to say thank you for allowing me to be here and for taking the time out of your day to come hear what I have to say. And you are Mr. Stansfield? That's right, my name is Michael Stansfield. And uh, whether it's fame or infamy, you'll hopefully you remember who I am. You know, um, I'm a member of the United Methodist Church. And uh, my wife is from Saudi Arabia. I happen to be Jewish and she happens to be Muslim. But we get along pretty good. And I love her a whole bunch. But I saw some of the things going on in Palestine and I didn't like it. 
So I became a member of BDS, and I said, you know what, I am not going to purchase products in Israel until people can look each other as equals like I look at my wife. And they came out with some legislation, some legislation that Suzanne is champion right now. She's the co-sponsor on the legislation. The legislation says any entity that is a member of a BDS organization and boycotts Israel is subject to XYZ penalties under state and local law. Well, the members of BDS is a Presbyterian church. It's the United Methodist Church. It's the Mennonites. It's the Quakers. I don't understand how silencing the religious left is going to help the Democrats against the religious right. Now, I've noticed something. Anytime I came out and I, I, I sympathize with the Palestinian people, which you don't, you don't have to do that. But people would call me a racist. People would call me an anti-Semite. People would label me with all sorts of different labels. So I'm looking at a situation where people, all these Presbyterians, all these Methodists, they're part already of, an, of a BDS organization. So someone says, you didn't purchase the Israeli product. You're a racist. So it becomes a witch hunt. How do you prove why someone didn't buy a product? If you sanction a nation, you can say, here's the receipt. Here's the bill of sale. It came from Iran, or it came from someone doing some genocide somewhere around the world. Thank but you. How Sorry. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Yes. Good evening. My name is George Griffith, and I'm running for CD1. And I would like to talk about two major points. The first one is experience. There's a lot of politicians out there saying they have experience because they've been in office. Ms. Bonamici is that person who has that kind of experience. But if you look at what she does when she's in Washington, she sits on the Science, Technology, and Space Committee. And she is, by experience, a lawyer, a consumer protection lawyer. Now, my background is actually science, technology, and engineering. I've worked for a NASA contractor and, most recently, a company called Apple, which you may have heard of. So I understand a little bit about science and technology. So if I were to be sitting on such a committee that Ms. Bonamici is, I think somebody like myself who has experience actually doing that job would be a much better fit for dealing with the problems that we're going to be facing in this, in this country as we go into the 21st century. Now, the second major issue is about campaign finance. I've recently heard Ms. Bonamici speak about how important campaign finance is, how hard she has worked. Yet, over and over again, I look at her campaign finances, and she consistently takes significant amount of money from super PACs, super PACs and corporations. If you are really serious about campaign finance reform, which I think we should be, then the first step is just to say no. And what I'm getting up here to do is I'm going to call out Ms. Bonamici, Walden, Schrader, Blumenauer, and DeFazio, all of them, just say no to corporate money. That's the best way to start campaign finance reform. George Griffith, CD1. My name is Preston Miller, and I'm a regular blue-collar, working-class American. My mother had me at the end of her junior year of high school when she was only 17. When I was a preteen, I mowed lawns for my neighbors. And when I, when I graduated high school in 2008, I joined the Army. 
because I was told there's no better, there's, I believe there's no greater honor than fighting for one's country, especially if that is the United States of America. I did a peacetime tour in Korea for a year and a combat tour in Afghanistan for a year. I'm currently going to Portland State University where I'll finish my Bachelor's of Science in History in June of this year. Why I'm running? I'm running for public office because I love my country and I didn't spend a year in Afghanistan dodging bullets and bombs to see it turn, torn apart by petty partisan politics and far-left progressives who like to blame the entire world's problems on America. For eight years, we had a president who was an apologist and an enabler of our enemies. Make no mistake, freedom of speech is on the ballot in November. Make no mistake, the Second Amendment is on the ballot in November. The Trump presidency is on the ballot in November. I'm running because I love America. I love our constitutional republic, our way of life. Yes, the social progressives love to call America a slave society. Well, you know what it was. But then we, spent a, then we, then we fought a bloody civil war that cost half a million lives. <clears throat> then white and black activists spent another 100 years, mostly Republicans, I might add, fighting with their very lives for civil rights from both women and, women and people of color. Today, we, have, we got the Civil Rights Act passed, the Voting Rights Act passed, mostly with Democratic opposition. Today, America is the most successful multi-ethnic, multi-racial society in the history of humanity. We must always remember the, original, the Democratic Party is the original party of slavery, Jim Crow, and segregation. Now today, they are doing the same thing they always do, using identity politics and race to keep the people divided and in chains. The Democrats aren't going to be happy until everyone is sucking the teat of government dependence. I believe in common sense solutions, bipartisan compromise. The framers knew we weren't destined to all get along. That is the beauty of America. My name is Preston Miller. I'm running for Oregon's first congressional district. A vote for me is a vote for the working man. I love my country. I love Oregon. I love the first district. And I will fight for the people because I'm from the people. Sorry, I came here kind of late, and we were last minute. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is John Verbeek. Um, I'm a candidate for Congressional District 1. I live in the People's Republic of Portland. And I ran for races before, uh, and I was the only, there were only Democrats on the ballot. So I've been running, uh, put my name on the ballot, because if I wanted to raise my family in a socialist republic, I would have moved to the Soviet Union. It's very difficult to win as a Republican in Portland, so I, I decided to file for CD1, because it doesn't matter what you think. Uh, if you don't win, uh, then it's pointless. Um, freedom is very important to me. And I'm by running, I'm reminding my fellow citizens of the roadmap to freedom, which is the US Constitution and follow it. I feel a little bit like that young guy in Amsterdam who, told the, uh, who helped the uh, US military uh, veteran uh, finding the way. He had dropped his map, he gave him back his map and find him the, the right way forward. That map is the US Constitution. Besides maintaining constitutional rights, uh, two other issues are transport, transportation infrastructure and good health. We need to invest in transportation because efficient and better mobility of people and their goods and their ideas is essential to grow family income. 
And good health is also important. I used to toast people to their good health, but here everybody only talks about health care. We must make sure it's still about good health. In conclusion, I would say don't take America for granted. Thank you for having me. I talk with an accent, but I don't think with one. My name is John Verbeek for CD1. Vote for me. And now we continue to the candidates for the Oregon House District 32. Good evening. That, is this working? Yeah, it works just fine. Well, good evening. I'm Tim Josie. I'm a uh, candidate for House District 32. Uh, I live actually in, in Tillamook County. This is my second go around if I'm successful in being elected. I served for eight years in the Oregon legislature and then term limits came around and and I got booted out of there. And so I decided to run for county commissioner and I've been doing that for, or this is my 20th year of doing that. So I've decided now that the, the seat is open, uh, Debbie Boone and Betsy Johnson encouraged me to run. And so I'd like to do that. So the, one of the things that I want to stress is that I serve this area and the people that remember me know that it's not just what you do in Salem, it's what you do when you're in the district. I've spent as many days as possible reacquainting myself with folks in the district and meeting new people so that when businesses, when schools, when students, uh, when ports have issues, they know who they can go to. And our, far, our, our current legislators here in the area have been very good at that. So that's really important. Now, I'm running because I think we have a number of issues that we need to deal with, and I'll just highlight them, uh, uh, some of them. Um, we need to invest more in our children. Childcare is, is too expensive for many people that can't afford it. We need to invest in our kids so that they're ready to learn when they go to school. We need to uh, reform our tax structure. Uh, we're too reliant, our state general fund is too reliant on income taxes that go like this. And so we need to create some balance so that we aren't in uh, a win and a lose situation. And then finally, we need to work, spend more time or invest more in workforce housing. That's a huge crisis facing all of us here along the Oregon coast. We have people that are coming to our communities with good jobs, promise them, and they can't find good housing. And so we need to <coughs> invest, incentivize the programs at the state level so that we can create uh, workforce housing. Thank you. I'm John Orr. I've been a resident of this region for over three decades. I raised my family here. I have two daughters and one grandchild. I am the progressive candidate in this, have been a, I'm the progressive candidate in this race. I have been a progressive activist for over three decades. As an environmentalist, I was president of the North Coast Land Conservancy for six years, where I worked to protect Oregon's coastal wetlands and habitat. I now work in the private sector pursuing those goals. I was an early and outspoken opponent of LNG terminals on the Oregon coast, long before it became a popular and statewide movement. As a champion for youth, I represented many hundreds of children in juvenile proceedings and was chairman of the Cannon Beach Children's Center for years. 
My background is tailor-made for this position. My BA was from the University of Arizona in regional planning and economics. I received my law degree and certificate in environmental law from Lewis and Clark in Portland. While in law school, I worked for Oregon Legal Services on behalf of the poor on social security and housing. I had my law practice here for 24 years, representing thousands of clients in Tillamook and Clatsop counties. I have been the municipal judge for Gearhart for the past 21 years. I know firsthand the issues that face the people who live here and work here. I know how laws affect people. I will work on your behalf to adequately fund education, rebuild our failing infrastructure, reduce drug addiction, address the housing crisis, fight for universal health care, and fight the corporations that have too much political power and have gamed the system for too long to avoid paying taxes, handicapping our ability to address urgent, unmet needs. I didn't attend a meet and greet in Salem last month where candidates met lobbyists to ask for thousands of dollars in campaign contributions. I am beholden to no one. Thank you. Hi, my name is Tiffany Mitchell, and I'm running for state uh, for House District 32 uh, for state representative. Um, as a working class Oregonian from a single parent family, I know firsthand what it is like to go without, and I know that there are folks here in this district and all over Oregon who do too. There are kids in this district who don't have enough food to eat. There are seniors that I've talked to on doors who are afraid that they aren't going to be able to live out their lives in their own homes. And there are people in this district who have to worry, both as renters and as homeowners, how they're going to pay their housing costs by robbing Peter to pay Paul, and at the same time wondering how they're going to afford their health care, how they're going to pay for their retirement and their kids. And it's not going well for many of them. I'm fighting because this is an unacceptable reality that many Oregonians, myself included, face every single day, and it is unacceptable. As someone who believes that everybody deserves a good roof over their head, somebody who believes that our environment should be protected, somebody who believes that everybody is entitled to receive a good public education, I am going to be that person that fights for those things in Salem. And if we want to see things change, we need to start voting differently for different people, people who are working class Oregonians like nearly every single person in this room who understand what those daily issues are like and what the laws that are created at the top are going to trickle down and affect at the bottom. If you want to see change, I think the important thing we need to remember is we need to vote for somebody different. And I'm going to be that voice that will fight for all of you in Salem. Please vote for Tiffany Mitchell for House District 32. Hello, I'm Vanita Lauer, and I am, I consider Oregon my home, even though I wasn't born here. I came, this is where I first lived after coming from India. I have three adult children. My two sons are veterans. My oldest son uh, works at Joint Base Lewis McCord, and he is in the National Guard. Um, before getting my bachelor's degree at, at Warner Pacific and my master's degree at George Fox, I worked for the Department of Transportation in Washington State, where I work exclusively with um, federal and state legislation 
and appropriations. And I feel that we have um, a high need for transportation issues here in our North Coast. It's a beautiful area. North Coast is just amazing. People are coming here from all over the world, which I learned working at Nike, just meeting and greeting so many people from around the world. And that has really caused some transportation issues. We have backups, we have flooding at milepost 31. That really needs to be resolved. We have um, uh, we have high service employment. These people, as my other candidates, the other candidates here have already mentioned, they need affordable housing. That's a real need. If we're all talking about it, it's an important need. That needs to be addressed. And finally, as I was reviewing the school performance results recently for 2017, I noticed that the graduation rates were lower in the higher population areas. And what seems to be direct with that is the high absenteeism, especially amongst our juniors and seniors. We need to get them engaged. We need to come alongside the students. We need to come alongside the parents. We need to come alongside um, our community. And sorry. <laughs> Uh, we need to come alongside them and get them involved in trades um, now that we're, there's not such a high demand in collegiate jobs. Get them into job shadowing with trade jobs. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Vanita Lauer. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Halverson, uh, independent candidate for Oregon House District 32. I'll try to keep this short and sweet. Uh, you can read my entire platform on my website, brianfororegonhouse.com. I jumped in day one uh, with an entire platform that you can read. But the three issues I want to highlight tonight, uh, economic fairness. I believe that working Oregonians deserve tax breaks, uh, not the wealthy and large corporations. Uh, I believe in economic, uh, or pardon me, uh, environmental justice, which means that we uh, stop building LNG pipelines, that we take care of our environment, that we uh, look for a more sustainable approach to forestry, to fishing. Uh, and I also believe an important, uh, the third important uh, issue is campaign finance reform. Oregon is one of just seven states in our nation with uh, no limits on how much you could donate to a statewide campaign. I'm not saying that uh, to get your donation, trust me. Um, but that's why you see millionaires donating quite a bit of money to candidates. Uh, uh, Phil Knight of Nike donated a million dollars plus to Newt Bueller. George Soros donated $50,000 recently to Kate Brown. It's on both sides. That's why I'm running as an independent. I believe we need to take back our system from corporate power and the rich. Thank you very much. All right, I'm going to give a next question um, and then tell you how we're going to answer this. The question is, how would you address the issue of safety in our schools? And I'd like to start with the candidates uh, for the U.S. Congress, and I'd like to start with Mr. Verbeek and move in this direction. And we'll do the same with respect to the uh, uh, House, uh, Oregon House representative candidates, starting with Mr. Halverson and, and coming on down. So the question is, how would you address the issue of safety in our schools? The uh, schools should be safe. 
and as chief law enforcement in a county, for me, that's the sheriff. Uh, when you have a school shooting, and we've had several school shootings, the, the children shouldn't have to be worried about it. But what really, uh, what I don't understand is that all these people who are in charge never lose their job. Uh, they blame guns. But we have to work with, with law enforcement, uh, with the, the school principal. We must ensure safe schools. Okay, my name is Preston Miller. Um, I think it's a really simple, easy question. First of all, we have to enforce the laws already on the books. I mean, if you look at the Parkland shooting, you had how many reports to the FBI and local police that didn't do their jobs in regards to that? And if you really want to protect schools, maybe we should arm the teachers. Not all teachers are going are to feel comfortable with own guns. That's perfectly okay. Um, but let's give bonuses to professor, professors and teachers that are willing to get their concealed carry permit and willing to, I mean, instead of running in front of a hail of bullets, they can, you know, shoot down the shooter like that, like the uh, school cop did in, in Maryland. I mean, how, many, how much do you hear about him? And like, he came to the school, wounded two people, and the uh, deputy on the school immediately reacted and killed him. It's exactly what should have happened in Parkland, except the coward deputy stayed outside while he was innocently butchering 17 people. Arm the teachers and enforce the, school, the laws on the books. I will agree with Mr. Miller on a couple of points, but disagree on a couple of others. And the this first, is Mr. Griffith. Oh, that's George Griffith, CD1. The, the first step is you have to look at what led up to the Parkland shooting. Is the, the shooter had a history that should have been known to a lot of people. He, the, the, his records went back quite a bit, and there should have been some awareness that he was a, a risk. The other issue of there was an officer on the scene. Why didn't he work? Why didn't he do his job? And I would not categorize him as a coward. I would say they, he was meeting some policy that was ill-informed. The FBI knew information, other people knew information. So we need to look at that. And I totally disagree with the fact that we should arm teachers, especially in, in the light of a situation where you have police officers re responding to an active shooter, and they see somebody walking down a hall with a gun. Who are they gonna shoot? They don't know if it's a teacher or the shooter. How do we distinguish that? And arming our, our teachers just puts our students at risk. George Griffith, CD1. Uh, Michael Stansfield, although Michael works for me, I like first names. I've been in access control and security industry for the last 20 years. There are a whole host of things that we can do to make schools infinitely safer than they are right now. You can put readers and such on doors that lock down the entire school immediately if there's any issues. You can put in all different types of surveillance and other things. There's different realities, though, when you're, when you're talking about a school shooter. You have kids that play games all the time. They don't always distinguish between what's right and wrong. And I think all too often in our schools, we kind of push morality off to the side. You know, I've heard oftentimes about, you know, the separation of church and state, but I really think that all the religion should be in the schools, if, especially if you're talking about high school. Bring in the Buddhist monks. Bring in... The, the Jewish rabbis, bring in the Muslim imams. You know, one of the things that we have with our, 
we have, because people do not know about Islam, it's defined by people who hate Islam. Thank you. Uh, Ricky Barajas, Congressional District 1. Um, I do not support arming teachers. We, can't, we don't even give them a raise, that's wrong. So I do not support arming teachers, I support arming uh, security guards, officers. I, I wanna support teachers, educators. I wanna support uh, resources. So I, I do not believe in arming teachers whatsoever. I believe we gotta invest in the schools. We need to invest in re uh, reinforce maybe doors. The solution is out there. This is an epidemic that's not gonna go away. We keep categorizing each tragedy by different situation. The FBI dropped the ball, the police dropped the ball. This has happened since 1999, since Columbine. It's gonna get worse, it's not gonna stop. We need to address the issue. Again, I'm for the Second Amendment. I will never say take guns away, but we need to make sure we can study the issue, what's causing this, and find common solution. If we don't study the issue, how can we have any solutions? Thank you. Brian Halverson, House District 32. I, um, I honestly believe that we need uh, stricter gun laws in Oregon. Um, we've had an assault weapons ban before, and it worked. It didn't mean people were going into anyone's homes and taking their guns. No, that's not what it meant. It meant that there were no new manufacturing of uh, weapons of war, which is a good thing, I think. And um, particularly, uh, we need to look at strengthening background checks. We need to look at strengthening, we have a gun registry in our state that has several holes. Um, so we need to look at the systems we have in place already and strengthen those. Also, uh, mental health is part of it, but it's not to say that uh, people with mental health problems are going to be violent, it's just people with mental health problems need treatment. And I believe that we should include mental health treatment in schools like we used to do with school nurses. I believe increasing, absolutely, increasing funding for education in terms of healthcare in schools will help partly with some of that issue. Benita Lauer, House District 32. That's a really good question, and I agree with you on the mental issue. Um, there are a lot of prescriptions out there. There's a lot of students that are on medications. And as, an, as a virtual teacher who's also worked in the brick-and-mortar classrooms, um, I've seen a lot of disrespectful students. I've experienced it. I've experienced t bullying as the teacher. I've uh, seen bullying amongst each other. The, people, the kids that call them their best friends, they bully them. And personally, I think when there's a problem in my family, I go within my family. And I think that maybe we need to take a look at what's going on inside the schools and look at how can we resolve this within ourselves, within the school, and not so much externally and going at, um, looking at it externally, but looking at what is it that's happening inside the schools. I'm Vanille Lauer from H House District 32. Hi, Tiffany Mitchell, House District 32. I have to say it's really hard to follow Brian's answer because it's amazing and encompasses just about everything that I feel we should do as well. So without trying to say every brilliant thing that he just said as well, um, I will say that in addition to looking at regulations for certain types of firearms and accessories that make it easier to take uh, human life, we can also look at other common sense 
gun reforms here in the state of Oregon by looking at the examples that other folks in this country have already started to implement. Uh, there are age restrictions, there are storage restrictions that have been proposed, and I honestly think as well that gun violence starts because America has a gun violence issue and an issue with violence in general. If we start actually investing in a mental health, like Brian said, and other social infrastructure issues that cause those violence problems, we can hopefully start to address things at the beginning before this becomes a problem, rather than right after a shooting has happened. I'm John Orr, thanks. I'm John Orr, and uh, I'm a hunter, and I own guns. I don't think the proposal to ban assault weapons would withstand constitutional um, muster because it is not distinguishable in its operation except for one thing, and that is its high-capacity magazine. It is not distinguishable from other rifles used in hunting. It looks scary. Um, I really like the idea uh, that I, I heard from the OEA, and that is there should be mental health, well, they, they said there should be increased funding for counselors. I think there should be intense annual mental health screening uh, for students. That's one way we can intercept it. I don't think teachers, I think teachers should teach harmony and, and, uh, and their curriculum, and they shouldn't have to be trained in shooting to kill. I think we should research gun violence and its causes, if there's any gun show loopholes, they should be closed. I think it was closed. Um, we need to look at uh, safety procedures at school. And I think uh, this idea is catching on. Have two affidavits like we do for a mental health commitment that uh, will, if uh, sworn and accepted by a court, will suspend a person's right to bear arms. I think that could have actually intercepted and saved lives. Thank you. Thank you. Tim Josie, House District 32 candidate. Um, I own a rifle and I own a handgun, and I'm a strong proponent of the Second Amendment, uh, but I have a heart. What's that? Let's, uh, right it didn't work the last time, did it? Do I get to start over? Oh, good. Yes, you do. And so, we're also going to give you, because I think maybe there were some problems hearing you initially, we're going to give you an additional 30 seconds. How about 30 minutes? <laughs> well, All right. I think everybody would uh, like thank that. Thank you. I'm Tim Josie, uh, candidate for House District 32. I, I do own a couple of guns. I hunt and I fish. I have a hunting rifle. I have a handgun, and I actually have a concealed weapon permit that I've never used. Uh, I believe in the Second Amendment rights, and so a strong proponent of that. But uh, I think that the NRA is going too far. I have not, and nor will I be a member of the NRA. I believe that teachers should not be armed. They should be teaching. Uh, I believe that there, we need to have better background checks. I don't, we need to ban bump stops, and we need to uh, uh, ban high-capacity magazines, and there needs to be more mental health screens. So, and finally, uh, the last thing I'll say is I really appreciate what the students across the United States are doing. They're the ones that are gonna change the problems we have with all these shootings in our schools. And so, good for them. 
All right. Uh, for our next round, um, why don't we just go straight on down the line? Um, I'm going to give you a really easy question here. Um, and it applies both at the U.S. or federal level and state. How can we address the services that we need to provide our citizens in the context of no money, kickers, budget shortfalls, changes in budget? What do we do? Increase taxes? Uh, given the services that we need, how do we pay for them? And we'll start here at the beginning. Um, raising taxes is not the issue, uh, but I do believe in cutting and spending that we do not need. Number one, the military, they're not asking for money. Why are we still pumping money into the military? That's one part of what I would take money out of the military to fund programs that we need. Um, second, we've all seen and heard what's happened, um, the latest tax cut for the 1%. That's money that can go to all of us, all of you, for programs that we do need, like we're mentioning right now. Lastly, I'm a huge believer that after the bailout, the American people did not get bailed out back. We didn't get back our money, so shouldn't we hold them accountable for getting our money back for what we, for what we did for them? They, they made a huge mistake, so why can't we get back a portion of that money to fund resources, to fund programs, to help the needy? Thank you. You know, I've often seen candidates, they'll, they'll come up and they'll say, we should spend more here, or we should cut taxes here or there, but you never really get a hard line of where a candidate stands. And this is Mr. Stansfield. Yes, yes, everyone, that's me. So I think each candidate should be allowed to present his tax rate and his budget on the ballot. And so when you are voting in that mayor or that governor or that president, you are voting not only for the person, but you are voting for their tax rate and their budget. So you know in hard facts what you are getting and not just someone's promises so that you yourselves are making the decision of what your tax rate is and where your money is spent. In the reality in Congress, everyone has their pet program, and so the money is going a thousand different directions. By tailoring it under one person with their ideas and their goals and ratifying it through the people, you have, a, you have a tax rate and a budget that is in balance because if it's not, you have penalties. So it's a little different way of looking at it, but I think this is the way to go. George Griffith, CD1. I think it's really a false choice to say we have to either choose between raising taxes or cutting services. What we really need to look at is where all the money is being wasted. At the national level, we recently gave tax cuts to billionaires to the tune of $1.5 trillion that just gets added to the national debt that's gonna be paid for by our children and grandchildren. On the state level, I don't need to remind you guys about PERS, which is costing the state of Oregon $4 billion a year. And how do we argue for 50 million here or 100 million there for education when we are squandering billions on something that never should have been allowed to happen in the first place? As a point of fact, we could cut the PERS program. We can save $2 billion in PERS if we just limited the payouts to $5,000 per month. There are people who are receiving $30,000 per month in retirement. I, don't even, I, I know some people who don't even make that in a year. 
So we need to cut the waste first. Thank you. George Griffith, CD1. Hello, Preston Miller for CD1. This is actually a very easy, easy, question, easy question to answer. First thing we need to do is stop sending billions of dollars overseas in foreign aid to countries who cannot stand us. We need to get our, we need to get our so-called war on drugs under control. Let's see, what else? We need to stop spending millions of dollars on stupid pet projects in Congress. That you, I mean, you look at some of these weird studies. They're spending $20 million here on haircuts for a certain group of people or a certain ethnicity. Why don't we have one in five children starving? No more new taxes. Let's stop spending millions of dollars overseas on countries that hate us. Let's re and reinforce our infrastructure with some of that money. Let's start feeding our children, figuring out how we can feed one in five children that are starving in this country. But instead, we're spending over a trillion dollars in countries like Afghanistan, where that country's not going. Uh, I'm an Afghanistan war veteran, and they're salt of hearth, normal people, farmers, etc. But we're not. They're not getting the money. Guess what? A corrupt government in Kabul is. Thank and you. that's just one example. No new taxes, bring the money back home, fix our infrastructure, and feed our children. John Fubeek, the budget problems, funding problems, the state never had so much revenues. And still, the Democrat-controlled legislature, they, they create these budget shortfalls. I don't think we have such a budget shortfall. We have a spending problem. And um, on the national level, uh, the, the, the omnibus deal, it's, uh, I think it's great how President Trump got both parties together to sign off a deal. But what I don't like about that one is that there's no, there's no, no, no uh, savings. The, the, the entitlement programs, like PERS, it, it will sink the country if you don't do a little bit about it. There's no sacrifice from anybody in that omnibus bill. In fact, there's so much money now in the government, they're wondering what they should be doing the rest of the year. John Verbeek for CD1. Jim Josie, is that working? No. You can use mine. I'm not going to give it back. <laughs> so I'm Tim Josie, a candidate for House District 32. Uh, well, at the federal level, uh, you know, this tax plan that was just passed, you know, the 1% the got the lion's share of it, and they get to keep it forever. And the, the rest of us, everybody in this room, uh, we got the dregs, and it goes away in 2025. And what happened is that's going, that has increasing the national debt astronomically. And what's going to happen because of that? Social services are going to be cut. That's the grand plan at the federal government. At the state level, uh, we need to reform our tax system because right now, as I said earlier, we, we, some years we do really good, some years we don't do good. We need to reform our tax system so that we can guarantee the social services that the, the people in Oregon uh, expect and need. Thank you. Um, I feel really strongly about this issue and done a lot of research on it. Um, this we is should Mr. raise. This is oh, Mr. I, I'm John Orr. I'm running for House District 32. Um, we should raise taxes on corporations. The timing could not be better. 
The economy is robust. There has just been, as reference, a $1.5 or $1.5 trillion tax cut. Now would be a good time for the state to recapture some of that, uh, that boon, uh, that, you know, that uh, windfall uh, to benefit the services uh, that the question addressed. Um, Oregon's uh, corporate tax rate, uh, corporate tax revenues have gone uh, from 18.6% of overall uh, revenue uh, in the 80s to 6.7%. That's not right. They're not getting less value. They're not getting less police, less courts, less infrastructure, less air, less water. They're getting the same thing. They're getting a lot cheaper because they're gaming the system. This needs to stop. Those who have done well should pay their fair share. There has been shenanigans all around, and uh, it's, it's just a shame because we're not going to entrust to our children what we had, good roads, good bridges, and good schools. It's a betrayal of faith. And the action needs uh, to be taken. I don't think we should blame members of uh, the public employees' unions for having a middle-class lifestyle. Thank they, you. They are good workers. And to keep good workers, you got to pay good. Thank you, Mr. Orr. I have a lot more I'd like to say about this. but Tiffany Mitchell, House District 32. The simple revenue, uh, the simple answer to this is to raise revenue. Um, currently, about 94% of Oregon taxes are paid by people like you and me, just regular folks and small businesses. And in my opinion, that is just wrong. Um, we need to start funding our social services by asking the largest members of our community, large corporations, to pay their fair share. Obviously, there are things we can do to try to minimize and mitigate impact um, to folks who might, <clears throat> pardon me, have issues with that. But uh, I, I do feel strongly that we need to ask the strongest members of our community to, the, the biggest members of our community to pay more because they're asking us to pay them. We're their friends and their neighbors and they need to support us as much as we support them. Benita Lauer, House District 32. I believe that their taxes do have their places, but I think that they need to be used for the purpose that they were designed for, not instead of being doled out amongst various entities that aren't intended for those specific tax taxes. I think that we need to review the process, uh, process in the state jobs to reduce redundancy and unnecessary expenditures. Benita Lauer, House District 32. Brian Halverson, House District 32. Um, according to the Oregon Center for Public Policy, a nonpartisan group that uh, crunches numbers, uh, they found that Oregon's businesses pay the lowest effective business tax rate in the nation, tied with Connecticut. Uh, obviously, that's the way we should raise revenue, is taxing large corporations like Nike and Intel, not working people like yourself. Uh, there are also uh, tax breaks that large corporations get that you don't. Uh, there is something called a pass-through tax in Oregon, which was passed in 2013. It was so popular that the Republicans on the national level copied it and put it in uh, their uh, tax plan. Uh, so we have to look at removing uh, uh, tax breaks for wealthy individuals. There's also a corporate tax loophole that the uh, Oregon Supreme Court opened up that I believe the legislature should look at passing a uh, uh, constitutional amendment to uh, overturn. All right. Um, again, I'm going to sort of give you a preview of the question, then tell you how we're going to we're going to go. Um, this is kind of a two-part question. 
Um, how would you address campaign election financing? And with respect to uh, a potential constitutional amendment, what's your opinion with respect to having a national public vote determine the presidency as opposed to the electoral college? So it's campaign financing and national um, public vote electing president. I'd like to start with Mr. Josie and continue on down, and then we'll start with Mr. Barajas and continue on down. One person, one vote. It's time. Uh, secondly, so that answers the first question. Uh, the, the second question, what was it again now? A campaign financing. Campaign financing is the, the root of our evil uh, within our democratic system in the United States, and it needs to be reformed. You know, we had term limits for a while, and I was a victim of that, but the real problem is campaign financing. And if we could have a system where everybody had an equal shot at, at uh, uh, campaign uh, financing so that they can run a decent campaign without beholding, being beholden to uh, a number of lobbyists and big, corp big corporations, I think that that in itself would reform the system. That's a big lift. Corporate contributions are destroying democracy in America. This is Mr. Orr. And I'm John Orr, and I approve this message. <laughs> um, Citizens, United, uh, Citizens United was a 2010 Supreme Court decision, uh, and it, it tells you why presidential elections matter. The Republicans and the right wing get it. I don't think the Democrats, the Democrats really got it in 2016. But that decision, which said that money is free speech, empowers corporations to spend as much money as they want. And if you think they, they would contribute without getting anything in return, I believe you'd be mistaken. Um, I think what we need is a 28th Amendment, which would abolish corporate personhood. Corporations should not have Fourth Amendment rights. They shouldn't have Second Amendment rights. They shouldn't have First Amendment rights. They are creatures of the state, and they should be controlled as they were created by statute. And I think if we're really going to get serious about a very difficult problem, we will have to address corporate personhood. I think there should be effective limits on, on contributions because we're not, we're not getting represented. Our Thank voice is not being heard. That's part of the anger that, that the American people are feeling, and that's why you get strange outcomes. They Thank just you. want somebody who will disrupt the system, and the problem with the system is corporate contributions. Thank you, Mr. Orr. Tiffany Mitchell, House District 32. Um, of course, I believe that campaign finance reform needs to happen. Obviously, if we have uh, folks contributing to campaigns, believing in, in kind of this quid pro quo, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, that's obviously a problem from at, at every level of government, government. So we need to make sure that we look at capping that while at the same time also trying to look at a way to level the playing field so that regular people can run instead of the richest among us because they really don't represent our values. As for NPV, national popular vote, um, you said something about the Electoral College. Uh, MPV actually does not eliminate the Electoral College. It only binds the vote of the Electoral College to the will of the people. 
people. I 100% believe in one person, one vote. It would mean that every red vote here in Oregon would mean the same as a blue vote somewhere else where normally those votes wouldn't count. So I 100% believe in MPV because it gives everybody a voice. Vanita Lauer, House District 32. Uh, the national vote, you know, I'd like to have them let us vote first on the West Coast so that I can actually not know who's the one on the East Coast before I go to bed. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky one for me, and, I, and I'm not quite sure where I stand on that yet. But the campaign election financing, I do believe that there should be some limits, and I agree with Tiffany, there should be some level grounds because everybody should be able to, like here at the forum, give, you, give us an opportunity to share who we are, what we're about, and, and, and level the, the, the field. And it's not about financing, but there is a place for some financing, and it does need to be capped, it does need to be limited. Thank you. Brian Halverson, House District 32. On the national popular vote, absolutely support it. Uh, I believe that it should be one person, one vote. On campaign finance reform, I mentioned this before. Uh, I'm not taking any corporate money in my campaign, only small dollar uh, donations. Um, no dark money gr uh, groups support either. So um, uh, what I really think that we should move towards is a system of public financing. You see a model for that in Portland, right now where if you pledge not to raise a certain amount of money, they will match that money. And so um, I think that there's plenty we can do to make our system more fair, to make uh, our system equal for working people to run for office and to not be drowned out by corporate interests. Thank you. Um, as far as the national vote, I do believe uh, what vote equals one representation, so. Uh, and, and this is Mr. Barras. I'm sorry, I keep forgetting Ricky Barras for Congressional District 1. Uh, I believe there are a few states already trying to enact in their own state houses that if the candidate win the popular vote, they will collect all the, the votes in the night, so I do support that. Um, as far as campaign reform, yes, uh, has a change, uh, but I also want to go a step further and hold current members of Congress accountable that pledge at first to say I won't add, collect any money from a big company, super PACs, but at the end they are collecting money. Hold people, hold congressmen and women accountable for collecting money after they state they will not receive any money. Thank you. Michael Stansfield. You know, it's, it's been a new experience for me uh, running for this office. And the reality is, is people talk about campaign finance because money is your voice. And that's the way people see it. I've seen lots of surveys that give very little room for divergent opinions. And as a candidate, uh, I'm limited most of the time to 325 words that I can post in the voter write-up guide. It'd be real nice to have just a website where each person could list their views and have a blog, you know, that we could all share so that you all would know you go to this website, you look up this person, this is his views on the economy, this is his views on the environment. And so this is a cheap and easy way to do it so we all have a voice in the process and so that as candidates I can hear from you.
George Griffith, CD1, the, elector, the Electoral College is a relic from the 18th century and needs to go. One person, one vote. I totally support that. In regards to campaign finance reform, I've already discussed this earlier, and I would challenge all our congressional representatives to just stop taking the money. That's, an, uh, that's a call to Bonamici, Walden, Blumenauer, DeFazio, and Schrader. Just say no to the corporate money. This is not a flood. This is not a natural disaster. It's nothing we can't do something about. The first step for campaign finance reform is just don't take the money. George Griffith, CD1. Hello again, Preston Miller, CD1. Um, when it comes to electoral college, we are not, well, for one, we're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. The electoral college is there, so everyone, so the entire country has a say. Without the electoral college, big states like Texas, Florida, California, and New York would be the ones controlling the ballot. Now it sounds, no, that's basically my opinion when it comes to that. We're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic. That's a fact. I am for the electoral college. Now, when it comes to campaign finance reform, this is where I differ on the rest of my Republican friends. And uh, as you can see, I'm, I agree with, John, uh, with George Griffith here. We need to get Citizens United overturned. It was a travesty that allowed for corporate big interests to control candidates. And it's been a travesty then, and it's been a travesty ever since. It has allowed so-called super PACs to gain billions and millions of dollars to candidates that are beholden to corporate interests and not the people. Preston Miller, CD1. John Schubeck for CD1. Um, on campaign finance, the Supreme Court ruled on that. Uh, it's been a long discussion for many years. Um, I think uh, it's important that we know where the money is coming from. Who is paying the candidate? Uh, that's, I think that's realistically the only thing we can strive for. If I could look at my budget for this race and for my three Republican candidates for CD1, uh, our combined budget pales compared with what Mrs. Bonamici has in the bank. I think it's $300,000. And yet I have a confident, a very strong hope that I, that I can win. It's, uh, life is, there's more to life than money. Um, and then on the presidential elections, I think the Electoral College protects minorities. Um, you have to be very careful with a direct vote. Um, I, I like the stability that the American political system has, uh, the Democrat Party and the Republican Party. It's not ideal, and extremists within those parties tend to, tend to uh, hijack the parties. But uh, if we should try to make the current system better than to, to uh, re revolutionize it. Thank you. All right, looks like this is gonna be our last question. Uh, it seems that at the national and sometimes the state level, people seem to be talking at rather than talking with each other. Um, this uh, seems to take place in our uh, K through 12 schools. So what programs would you suggest to combat bullying and promote conflict resolution in K through 12 schools on up to the, the state and federal legislature. 
and I'm going to start here again. Bullying, conflict resolution, K-12, up to state and federal uh, levels. Ricky Barajas, Congressional District 1. Uh, this is a tough question, so I'm going to refer back to the educators and the counselors who actually work at school and actually deal with bullying. Um, we need to invest back in education and teachers and uh, hire more counselors to deal with bullying, address the issue. Uh, we need to listen more to what's going on at the school front instead of waiting until it happen. We need to be proactive than reactive. Uh, I, don't, I personally don't have a straight answer for that, but that's why I refer back to the educators who do know the answers, who are with the students, who are seeing the bullying, who are seeing the tactics. I refer back to them. Whatever their feedback is to me, I will implement that. Thank you. Uh, Michael Stansfield. You know, uh, it's kind of funny we're talking about K through 12 because a lot of times as an American citizen, I feel kind of bullied by my government. I feel, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people that feel like the government really just doesn't care what they have to say. And a lot of times people just, we, we talk about freedom all the time and people are like looking around and where is it? And I think really something needs to change because, you know, Power is, is about control, and sometimes when a person has power, they, they forget about the people at the bottom. And I'm telling you, I won't forget you. George Griffith, CD1. There's two main areas that I'd like to address in this issue. The first one has to do with conflict resolution. I recently read on the uh, police website sites about training that officers spend hundreds of hours at the shooting range, yet only a handful of hours doing conflict resolution. I think that's a total mismatch. They need to work on conflict resolution as a primary goal before they start shooting. The second example is about bullying. We have bullying way up at the top. The president is a bully. His, his tweets and attacks just, just feed the hate and the animosity and the blog posts full of bullying and hate with people who think they have a voice because they are invisible. They can attack anybody they want. But we need to have civility coming from the top down. We used to have it in this country. I remember it. When I was growing up, when I was in high school, there was civility, and we had leaders who actually respected the other side, and they didn't call them evil simply because they disagreed. George Griffith, CD1. How about conflict resolution in school? Um, I was bullied most my entire, all throughout elementary school, middle school, and high school. And Getting the teachers and the instructors to help always made things worse. Look, bullying is never going to go away. It's always going to be around. We need to teach our children to be strong, independent adults that speak their mind. And when someone is challenging them, they have to be able to stand up for themselves. They should never resort to violence, ever. However, they should be able to defend themselves. When it comes to conflict resolution, how do I put this? 
We need, we need to teach the kids that, well, we need to teach them how to defend themselves. We need to show them that the world is not a nice place. We can always make, we can always do, we can always strive to make the world a better place, but it comes with respect and moral authority. We have to learn to respect our elders, respect our neighbors, and respect our friends, and learn to learn to shout over each other. Thank you. John Verbeek, CD1. Uh, compared with high schools in other countries, I find the peer pressure in American high school just enormous high. I think it has to do with the com com competitiveness. Where does competition end and bullying start? Uh, but I, I don't, uh, don't want to look to solutions for the kids. We have to look at the parents. Uh, a friend of mine runs for House District 33 in a very uh, blue district. And her kids tell her to not, don't tell uh, you're a Republican mom because uh, the other kids, uh, they, they are mean to us. Now, where do these kids get that from? The, we look, should look at ourselves before asking the kids for answers. John Verbeek, CD1. Tim Josie, House District 32 candidate. You know, a number of these uh, mass shootings in our schools is really, uh, as oftentimes, is a result of a kid or a student being bullied. And, and people are starting to understand that the, these kids get isolated, they get picked on, and pretty soon uh, they start lashing out. And so there needs to be, and schools are recognizing this now, and they're doing everything that they can to recognize bullying when it happens, help the, the kids that are being bullied, but just as importantly, talk to, the, talk to the bullies. If you bring them into counseling and let them know what they're doing and how much harm it's causing and what and why in the world are they bullying anyway? And it's often because they feel inferior. And if you, if you help them to feel good about themselves, uh, you can stop a lot of this. This one's working. You haven't started yet, have you? Oh, okay. Uh, I have a lot to say uh, about this. I think schools, there is a place for schools in conflict resolution, um, but I think we also need to look into, you know, ourselves and our culture, and dare I say it, our spirituality. Um, I think we need to look at how we define masculinity. I mean, we need to, men need to honor kindness and their own personal sense of honor. You know, when I was a kid, there were Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and Brownies and, and, and all that, and they instilled honor and a sense of duty. Uh, that's been forgotten, so I don't want to necessarily place it on the, all on the schools. Having said that, I think the, the lessons we need to teach are simple, but they need to be repeated. I've done my own little informal survey of the golden rule and it, whether or not it is understood by children. And most of them have no idea what the golden rule. How many people here know what the golden rule is? Please raise your hands. Everybody See, does. everybody does. But they're not learning it, and they're not, they're not remembering it, and they may not be applying it. Thank so, you. Um, Thank you, Mr. Orr. All right. Tiffany Mitchell, 
House District 32. Um, kind of a personal story, as someone who was heavily bullied as a child for my weight, my appearance, and basically being a nerd, this topic actually hits a, a real nerve for me because I know that for me, what I would have appreciated at that time uh, would have been not only empathy training for, from an early age for other kids around me, um, both at home and at school, but especially in the school, but I also felt like as someone who was bullied, it was often ignored by folks around me, and I was just told to toughen up and to, to, to suck it up because that's what makes you a better person. Um, that's not the way that it should be. So I think as a society, we do need to start with our children and with ourselves calling out bullying when we see it. It's never okay. And making sure that we are training uh, our kids and ourselves to think about how somebody else might actually feel when they're being bullied. Thank you. Vanita Lauer, House District 32. Uh, conflict resolution, I believe, only really works when both parties are willing to come to the table and have an honest discussion. And that often doesn't happen when you have bullies. And as a teacher, student, I know students are told to go tell their teachers. Teachers try. They send them to administration, administrators. It may or may not be talked, they may be talked with. And then they go back into the classroom and do it all over again. It needs to start at home. It needs to start in our communities. We need to teach each other respect. We need to teach our children how to respect other people. We need to say that it's okay to be different. As, as a teacher, I get trained on identifying and dealing with bullying every year. It's a mandatory training for me. Thank you. Thank you. Brian Halverson, House District 32. Uh, as I said earlier, I think we need um, mental health professionals in schools to help uh, teachers and students deal with conflict resolution. But this is also a large uh, encompassing issue. There are issues that we might not even think tie into this. Uh, for example, the issue of parents. Uh, if your parent works two or three jobs, it's very difficult for them to come home and uh, to ask about what happened about their day, ask about conflict resolution. Uh, if a kid goes to school hungry, it's more likely that they'll either be bullied or be a bully. If they go home to no place to live, it's more likely that they're going to be bullied or be a bully. There's societal issues at play that are not just uh, in the walls of the school. We need to look at ourselves. Thank you. All right, what I'd like to do at this point, and this will be the last round, and we'll start at the beginning and go uh, to Mr. Halverson again. Um, 30 seconds, keep my timekeeper uh, time working. Um, she'll give you 15 second, you know, and then 30 second. Um, speed round. What's your number one priority? What do you really want to accomplish? One priority. Starting, yes, at this end of the, oh, at the, end of the table with Mr. Barras. Uh, Ricky Barajas, Congressional District 1. Uh, as much as I want to list all my priorities, so one priority, uh, run, run control.
I want to see less animosity between people groups. That's Mr. Stansfield. George Griffith, CD1. I would like to challenge my fellow candidates as well as the current congressional delegation from Oregon. Just say no to the big money. 59% of their campaign donations come from big money corporate PACs. That needs to stop. Just don't accept it. Preston Miller, CD1. I think my number one goal would be term limits. For far too long, Washington, D.C. has been ruled by an argolaric class of millionaires and, no, and that no longer serve the interests of the working man or the working class. Term limits are must needed to drain the swamp. Get rid of the Ogilaric class and get rid of the millionaires. Send the working man to Washington, D.C. John Verbeek for CD1. My number one priority is to fight tooth and nail against package deals, what we call omnibus bills, and to defend the constitutional rights that uh, within any omnibus bill, that uh, those rights are protected. John Verbeek for CD1. Tim Josie, Josie, House District 32. My number one priority, I'm gonna go back to workforce housing. If we can't, if we don't have housing for the people that wanna work in our communities, we're gonna grind this economy down to a halt. And so that's uh, really important for us. Most people don't understand how important that is, but we need to address that. My number one issue is stabilizing funding and the way we do that is to raise taxes on those who have done the best and those who've got the most money. There's no other way to do it. We can't, uh, we can't impose taxes uh, on middle class and the working poor any, anymore. What we have to do is try to achieve fairness. We, unless, until we do this, we will accomplish nothing. I'll give you one example if I can just say this. We increased, that is the state government, increased the budget or education by 15%, but because PERS claims on that budget went up 45%, they're laying off teachers in, 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 in Salem, in Kaiser, in thank, Beaverton, in thank Portland. You. Thank you, Mr. In Orr. Bend. That was Mr. Orr, thank you. That's the problem. Tiffany Mitchell, House District 32. Um, I think my number one priority would be healthcare affordability and access to healthcare. Um, as someone who had a brain tumor when they were two, my parents didn't have to worry because they had insurance about how I was going to do. Now, even if you have insurance, a lot of people would probably not have the health of their child on the forefront of their minds, but whether or not they might lose their house, and that's, in, that's wrong. No one should have to worry about their own finances when they're sick. They should be focused on getting better. Benita Lauer, House District 32. Um, I would say for my number one issue, I'd say transportation. There really isn't any reason for us to be landlocked here. We've got uh, mudslides on Highway 30. We've got flooding on Highway 101. The pass on 26 looks like it's been, uh, I don't know what it is, but it looks like a patchwork quilt that's ready to fall apart at the seams. We need transportation. We need real transportation issues resolved. 
Brian Halverson, Oregon House District 32. Economic fairness. Uh, we are live in a country right now where the top 0.1% hold as much wealth as the bottom 90%. That is not sustainable. Uh, if uh, income inequality levels were at 1980 levels here in Oregon, the average Oregonian would be making 60 to $100,000 a year. Uh, right now, it's $35,000 a year. So I believe that we need to level the playing field between the rich and the working class. Thank you. All right, we're going to be taking about a seven-minute break to have the next group come up, but I just want to have a really large hand for these folks who've come before us tonight. Thank you so very much. Thank you.